bringing light to the world. Uh, oftentimes, our past uh, plagues us. Uh, we can have good memories, but oftentimes we're plagued by bad memories. All of us have a past, and not all of us are real proud of it. Um, what we are often plagued with is guilt, shame, and despair. And it can come upon us instantly. It's something that happens to me quite a bit. I talked to, uh, so I'm not even asking, I talked to this person the other day who said the same thing, that his past uh, always pops up and plagues him. Fiery darts of the uh, enemy and so on. So, however, what if God forgave you of all your sins and then was with you? So, the proclamate, or he tells you, I've forgiven you of all your sins. But then he says, I'm going to be with you. Everywhere you go, I'll be with you. Now, that could be good or bad. If everywhere I go, he's with me, does that mean he's following me around to condemn me and to just, you know, look for every mistake that I make? And say that's not true because it's not. He's not with you to condemn you. He walks and lives directly with you, not to follow you to condemn, but as your friend, your protector, your provider, your lover, and not with, without one ounce of condemnation. That is God himself with you. Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, I think for many of us in this world, we're, well, in the Western world and in Christianity, we're... We've become so used to the concept that it's almost familiar. And familiarity, you know, as they say, breeds contempt. But, um, you know, I think being familiar with it has its good points. But it also can have its bad points in that it's, you know, kind of like, oh, yeah, all right. God's with me. God's in me. God's, you know, with me always. Imagine yourself in the first century, though, where... Such a concept was so alien to the world, completely alien, alien to Israel, never mind, um, you know, with each individual to have God with them and in them. And yet, that's what it is. And that's what we look at today. It was one of the names given to Christ is Emmanuel, and it means God with us. So let's start in Matthew chapter 1. And we will begin with prayer, thanking God for our time together to hear his word and to learn the concepts that are so wonderful in this gospel, gospel of Matthew. We're going to do the whole thing. Who knows how long it's going to take us. It's a big one, so it will take a while. But um, what we'll learn will be truly magnificent. So being ready to learn means uh, humility and reverence. So let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this time in which we can hear it, learn of you, learn what you have inspired your writer, Matthew, a disciple, one of the disciples, the tax collector, who is with Christ, who Christ called, just like you call all of us. We come from all places, all shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds. And no longer does it matter, or did it ever really matter, 
of our our birth or our profession or what what we are what we do at the fact that we have faith in you and that you call us and so in response to that faith father we seek your word we ask that through your word our hearts would be enlightened into this wonderful principle that you are with us we ask this in Christ's name amen all right, so by means of introduction, it's good to uh, do this as we go through this uh, book. Uh, one of the things that we can anchor ourselves with, there's several things, uh, and you know, one of them is the prophecies that are here. Matthew uses more of them by far than any other gospel writer. And in our first section, which is chapters 1 through 4, there are five instances, five, there's ten in total throughout the whole book, and five of them are in the first four chapters. And that is to fulfill what was spoken. So this becomes a formula. Um, the prophet or Jesus said or Jesus did to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this word fulfill is used again and again Pleroo, and it means to bring to fruition or bring to completion. And the first one is our current subject, which is the virgin birth in Matthew 1.23. That uh, is a prophecy from Isaiah 7.4. That should be 14, not 4. Isaiah 7.14. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's from Hosea 11.1. That is speaking of the exodus out of Egypt. That really speaks of Exodus chapter 12. And yet... Uh, It is applied to Christ. Uh, The reason why Christ does, or the young Jesus, who was uh, a lad at the time, is taken to Egypt, is the murder of the children in Bethlehem. And that is also uh, given as Matthew as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31.15. At the end of chapter 2, uh, which kind of summarizes, you know, as we see at the beginning of chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2 are a unit within a unit. <laughs> and, uh, and in the end of chapter 2, he's called a Nazarene. He's also called Jesus. He's called Emmanuel. He's called the Nazarene. We have no idea. This Matthew says to fulfill what was spoken, and we have no idea where he gets it from. That's a super fun one volumes and volumes have been written about it. There's some educated guesses as to where Matthew got this from. We haven't a clue. But uh, he's called the Nazarene, and we'll see that. Matthew is describing why the Messiah is from Galilee. Whereas everybody, well, what do you mean Galilee? The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And he's going to explain that in chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, this is near the end, and as you can see here, through the first four of these, it's Jesus in his infancy, not infancy, but as a young, uh, a very young boy up to the time that he leaves Egypt and goes to Nazareth. Uh, And then light shines in Galilee. That's the beginning of his ministry. He's 30 years old. So a huge jump here. But again, the same formula is used to fulfill what was spoken And that's a quote from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, that a light would shine not in Jerusalem, not in Judah, but in Galilee. And this, there's, you know, we can only guess at why God sets it up this way. And, you know, one of the, it seems 
to me anyway, that it's done to show those who are proud about where they're from. You know, people are proud about who their lineage is, how much money they have, all these things that people are proud about where they're from. You know, the, the Jews from Judah are more proud of their location than the Jews from Galilee. And yet, the father has the son have his ministry based not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. And it's kind of like the, the backwater. You know, no, you know, no Jew wants to live there. Uh, so, it's interesting. Now, there's far, even leading up to chapter 4, there's more um, prophecies. There's actually, thir- I think, 13 of to yeah, 13 of them that are listed here, uh, but they don't all say to fulfill. These are the ones that say to fulfill, and so you know, it's good to remember, you know, why are we here? So we start at Matthew 118. Uh, the theme today is God with us, and in the Old Testament, it, this is where this name comes from in Isaiah 7 and 8, and uh, there's a certainly a phenomenon about this in our age, and we want to compare the differences to them. And just to look at, you know, God with us in our age and leave it, leave it at that, we, well, we'd be ignoring Matthew's prophecy. And so God is drawing us to the Old Testament. God is drawing us to see where these things are mentioned hundreds and hundreds of, well, for us, thousands of years ago and how they're connected to or related to what they are now. And it brings a richness to them. Because remember, God's program for the human race starts in Genesis and runs. It's still going uh, until the end of the age, until the end of time. And it's all related. It's all one plan or purpose of God. And it's uh, incredibly important for us to know every part of it. So, in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Okay, and here we go. We have the virgin birth. Joseph, who is a confused uh, man, uh, to say the least, but he does the right thing. And he has a dream in which the angel tells him, don't be afraid to marry Mary, Mary, uh, who is with a child who's not your own. So, um, First off, we want to ask ourselves, well, why is this here? Why is this here in Matthew? Is, is Matthew just telling a birth story? And the answer is no, because actually he doesn't mention the birth at all. Luke does. In Luke, we have the shepherds. In Luke, we have the, the manger and, and the birth. And we have that in Luke, but not Matthew. Matthew doesn't mention it at all. What we have in Matthew is the Joseph issue. Well, his issue, which is a big one. And the virgin birth. Now, Luke also has the virgin birth, but here we have this um, this appearance of the angel to Joseph to claim the prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 to our Lord being born for Mary. And so the birth of Christ was as follows: when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, again, that's an engagement, but it's legal. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord, he thought on it. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, an explanation of what happens in, in verse 17, in that Mary is found to be with child, in which Joseph is not the father, but he's described as the husband of Mary. So, how, you know, so there's a connection here. You don't. The genealogy is not separate from this. This whole chapter, the real division here in this short, in this first section, is between chapters one and two, um, and we'll see that. Uh, but you know, these two are together. We have the birth of Christ in the genealogy, coming from Abraham, coming from David, neatly put together by Matthew in three uh, sections of fourteen people each. Uh, and Jesus is shown there to be qualified. He's of the, of the line of David, of the dynasty of David, who is a dynasty of kings. And so he's qualified as by birth. But here in the second part, which is really this is the uh, story of the confirmation of Jesus as Messiah, in that <clears throat> he's going to save his people from their sins. And this... Is because this is a result or qualifying him as a savior, as Messiah, through the virgin birth. He does not have a natural father. And it's even a question as to whether, you know, he does borrow any genetic material from Mary. We don't really know that, by the way, but I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to get distracted by that. If you think he's got Mary genes in her, that's fine. You know, we don't know. God is able to do whatever he wants to do. The, the point being is that it is a virgin birth, which was foretold. And Joseph is told here by the angel in a dream that while he thinks hard on whether, you know, he wants to dismiss her privately or secretly, which he doesn't necessarily have to do and it, under the Mosaic law. And then the dream comes to him and saves the day, so to speak, for him. Uh, the credit to Joseph, and we'll see this later on this week, maybe tomorrow or Thursday, is that he still does a miraculous, not miraculous, but a, a noble thing. By marrying Mary, he has taken upon himself a bunch of trouble. And not that Mary's trouble. We don't know. <laughs> Mary seems like a fine woman. But uh, just the, uh, the stigma that's going to be upon their whole family because everybody knows at least locally, that Mary was pregnant before her and Joseph came together. So uh, the angel says then in verse 21, She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And it was the father that was to legally name the son. And by the way, this name Jesus, we'll get into a little bit tomorrow, uh, is a very common name in Israel at the time. It's Yeshua or Joshua. It's a very common name, and it means uh, God saves, you know, so that's significant. But a lot of people are called Yeshua, and then and then now Matthew ends. Now, for he will save his people from their sins. That's so. It's significant, obviously, for obvious reasons. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, notice that they. 
In the prophecy, it says she will call his name Emmanuel. But this is a third person plural. They will or they shall. It's future. They shall call his name Emmanuel. So Joseph is to call him Jesus legally. And that would be at his circumcision in eight days from this time, which is recorded by Luke, by the way. Uh, And yet they, which would be the recognition. You know, who's the they? The they is, you know, showing that he's going to be revealed to his people. The they is going to be a lot of people. We're calling him. Who of us, you know, are we in question that Jesus indwells our body, that the Son indwells our body? Are we questioning that? Is our faith wavering on the fact that we are with the Son of God always? You know, I've not met a Christian who didn't believe that. It's a requirement, really, of being a Christian. But, you know, it's amazing that we don't really have to be convinced of it, isn't it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us that convinces us that we are the children of God in Romans 8.15 and that we understand that, yeah, God is with me always. I forget it sometimes, but I believe it. So God with us is the character and mission of Jesus as God with his people. Now, Matthew doesn't use the word, the title Son of God here, but he doesn't have to. It's unmistakable. The hypostatic union is here. If God is with us, and this is God, sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not a God. This is God, the God who is with us. The God has become a man. He's born. He doesn't just appear. It's important that Mary is impregnated in whatever way by the Holy Spirit. And that this is a natural birth. He's a man. Very much so. And also God. And it, this is another thing that we've, we've known for so long, and it's, it's kind of easy to just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the hypostatic union. And I, I even thought to myself, you know, why am I trying to, as I'm studying and preparing, like, you know, how can I dress this up or make it jazzy, so to speak? And why do we have to make the hypostatic union jazzier? You know what I mean? Like, We must not take these things for granted. It's the most wonderful thing that there is, that God became a man. Now, the fact that he's going to deliver his people from their sins means he's Messiah, which is stated by the angel. The title signifies that the character and the mission of Jesus as God to save his people from their sins is exactly what he's going to do, and he's qualified to do it. He's the only one qualified and Jesus, as God's Son, is also God himself with his people. And he's with us to effect our deliverance and then remain with us after he has delivered us. So Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the genealogy indicates his legal right to the throne. He's born of David in the line of David. But if it were left at that, we would have never really seen him as redeemer to save people from sin. If he's going to save his people from sin, he has to be God with us. And he is. He is qualified, therefore, as Matthew sets us up here, or sets up his readers, to show Jesus of Nazareth as the one qualified as the Son of God, as 
the Savior of the world as the qualified king of Israel. He's got it all, so to speak. And he's got it all, and nobody else has any of it. You know what I mean? Like, there's what does he? Ha- what do we have that we share with him in and of ourselves alone without him? Zero. I mean, there's nothing. We even say, well, we're human and he's human. So come on, we're buddies, right? Come on, we're the same kind. But we're fallen humanity. And by the way, he's not human without God and God without human. This hypostatic union is not like a half and half kind of thing, correct? So, um, he's more than the son of David. The genealogy has him as son of David. Here he's more. Uh, Think of this, he has this, this is near the end, right? Where uh, he actually raises the question. This is just a few days before he dies. In Matthew 22, 41, he says to the leadership there, um, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? When he says the Christ, he means Messiah, Christos. And uh, they say, well, he's the son. They immediately answer, he's the son of David. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And, you know, if the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they can't answer it. So who is this man? <laughs> right? David calls him Lord, not Son. In Israel, at the time, you'd never. It would be the, a great blasphemy to call your son Lord. And uh, so, he's something more than the son of David. Now, we have to return to Isaiah a bit. And I realize, after Sunday, uh, you know, well, I'm trying to massage a message into the time that I have. And not always uh, preparing us with knowledge of things like like Isaiah is a complicated, long book, uh, and it, it's important that we kind of understand something of it. And the way that you do that is the same way that any of us would do that: is we have to struggle with it and then return to it. And so, if you're if you've tried to read through Isaiah, or you have. And you're like, wow, what did I just read? <laughs> I don't remember any of it. I don't know what it, what he said or what it was. There's two things you can do. You can say, you know what, this is hard, but I can do this. Or you can say, this is hard, and I never want to come back here again. And what a lot of people do is say, oh, I can't understand that. And they leave it aside. And if you do that, it's, in a way, you're saying to God, this complicated book, it is the greatest prophetic book in the Bible. And you're saying to God, it's not worth the effort. Like, sorry, God, you, you made it too complex. It's not so much that it's complex. It's that it takes returning to. Doesn't that sound like God doing something like that to us? Rather than, you know, he wrote something under the, he inspired Isaiah to write something that would mean a returning to a lot. You know, like going out to get manna every morning. Or, you know, returning to the scripture. Like, uh, it takes time. So don't be discouraged by it. If you read some of it or what I'm just about to present to you, you're like, ah, I still don't get it. 
don't be discouraged. Say, I'll get it. I can come back. You know, I don't mean just to church, but go to Isaiah. Try and read it. Try and take it in part. I mean, over time, you know. All right, so God with us. In Isaiah's time and now, there's similarities. Obviously, there always is, you know, with prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. There has to be similarities. There's a reason why he's the fulfillment of it. And, but yet, so often with what is now, now that it's fulfilled, uh, there's differences. And we want to know what those are. Uh, Isaiah divides itself nicely into three books. All right, the first one is the book of the king. That's chapters 1 through 39. The second one is the book of the servant, which is chapters 40 through 55. That's where you find the servant songs. And then the last part, the third book, is the book of the anointed conqueror in 56, chapters 56 through 66. And, uh, yeah, there's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in this book. It is technically a, a Bible within a Bible. And when you just simply see these three divisions, I mean, can't you see that there's a king? There's a king, and as a king, in these first 39 chapters, a lot of it is not just Israel, but the whole world, all the kingdoms and nations around Israel, you guys stink, you stink at being my creation. That could be a nice summary of the first 39 chapters. It's oversimplified. Within it is sparse with, you know, how God is going to, it's not, it's not always going to stink. But a large part of it is you all have been idol worshipers, not just Israel, but remember the whole creation is his. And so the first book is about the king as judge, but then, and in the middle part, the second book is, is really which does, doesn't make any sense because it's the king says, you stink at this. You would assume here comes the, the sledgehammer that says, now I'm going to destroy you. But instead, this servant shows up. And the servant is a redeemer, which means he's going to, it's not, <laughs> yeah, he's heroic, but he's going to actually give his life to purchase these stinkers in the first 39 chapters. He's going to actually purchase them. So he's a redeemer and a deliverer, whoever this servant is. Now, if you only had Isaiah and you lived in you know, 750 B.C., you wouldn't have a clue. Is he a man? We saw this on Sunday. Maybe it's Jerusalem is the servant. Maybe Israel is the servant. Maybe Hezekiah is the servant. Maybe David's the servant. I don't, you know, I don't know. You wouldn't know. Because God doesn't reveal everything at once. Now we know. That's the beauty of having knowing what we know. But God wants us to go back and see these things progress because there's much learning in that. Like I, I mentioned on Sunday, if things in your life look to be going really wrong, can you trust him? They said, well, I don't, you know, I don't understand what's happening. Well, neither did they 3,000 years ago. When the disciples were walking with Jesus, they didn't understand what was going on. When Job, the righteous, most righteous man on the earth, 
suffers horribly. Why do the righteous suffer? He didn't know either. There's a lot of things we don't know. And you know what? It's okay. And knowing the Scripture as a whole teaches us that. We can, in a moment, just reference, hey, man, I don't know what's going on here, but you know what? Neither did so many others. And it's okay not to know. What's not okay is not to trust. So we go from the servant, and then in 56 through 66, we see the servant conquering. Like he's, he's establishing a perfect world. That's his, his kingdom. That makes, you know, that's really human history all there. Okay, so then what you also need to know, now you have to have this memorized by Sunday, are the kings of Judah. Now, I didn't put in the kings of Israel. These are just the kings of the southern kingdom, all descendants from David. Now, it starts with Rehoboam. It doesn't, I, may, I kept it small because you don't need to know. <laughs> You don't. You don't. You don't need to know. What What I did want to point out is this is Rehoboam. He is Solomon's son. And the reason why he's first in this list is because he's the first king after the kingdom split. So David is a king of all of Israel. Solomon, for a great part of his kingdom, is a king of all of Israel. But Solomon plants the seeds for a civil war. And then his idiot son, his son's an idiot, uh, Rehoboam, does make some horrible decisions. And then the civil war blows up. And the two, kings, the two kingdoms separate, ten tribes to the north, two tribes in the south, and they never came back together again, never. And there they are. In this line are these two guys, not Jotham. Sorry. My shaky hands don't draw a straight line. These two. Ahaz and Hezekiah. Ahaz's dad, Hezekiah, is my boy. <laughs> He's the son. Ahaz is terrible, evil, sacrificed one of his children, obviously not Hezekiah, to the false god Moloch. Moloch. I don't know how to say his name. I don't really care to know how to say his name. And but Hezekiah is his son. Now Hezekiah is a good king, and Ahaz is a bad king. Why are they important? Because they're the ones who show up in book one. What Isaiah goes to in chapter seven, Isaiah's calling by God is in chapter six. Right after that, the first person he goes to, after God says, Your ministry is going to be about hardening their hearts. And say Isaiah saying, wow, thanks. I wish you had told me this before I volunteered. But your ministry is going to be to harden their hearts. And the first person he goes to is Ahaz after that. At least in the text, which is important. And Ahaz, like I said, is a bad king. But he's the 13th king after David. You see his name in the genealogy in Matthew. He's, now, Matthew doesn't have all the kings because Matthew wants... Uh, three sets of 14, nice and neat, so he keeps out some names. But he's the 13th king after David from 730 to 715 B.C. That's when he's king. That's not his life. He lived longer than that. And Hezekiah is his son. Now, Hezekiah is the king that Isaiah goes to at the end of book one. 
So if you remember, book 1 goes from chapters 1 to 39. That's the book of the king. At the beginning, it's Ahaz. At the end, it's Hezekiah. Father and son. One's good, one's bad. But we saw on Sunday that there's a bunch of parallels between them. They're both being invaded by Assyria. They're both by the pool or the water supply when Isaiah appears to them or comes to them. They're both told, they're both given a promise not to fear. God says to both of them, don't fear, I'm going to deliver you. God does deliver both of them. And to both, a sign is offered. Ahaz says, eh, I don't want a sign because he hates Jehovah. He's an idol worshiper. Hezekiah says, yes, please. I would love a sign. So it's possible, here comes his son of Ahaz, that you know Hezekiah could be our guy. Maybe Hezekiah is the servant. Now, we know he's not. But in, you know, about 700 B.C., Hezekiah prays. He, he goes to Isaiah, says, we need help. Isaiah sends back a letter. Hezekiah takes this letter to the temple and lays it out before God. I love that. It's, it's as if to say, God, this is your word that came from your prophet. I'm going to put this out in front of you. And then he prays, God, deliver us. And he, 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 it, that prayer is wonderful. It's a wonderful prayer. praying out how magnificent God is and that God, his faith is huge. Now, he's not really, his faith isn't huge all the time because he paid off Assyria before this to not invade him, which is not an act of faith. But Matthew is going to be using both. both. Matthew is going to be quoting Isaiah quite a bit. And so as we pass by, we're going to want to keep revisiting. So at least, you know, if you got that and you see that, all right, Isaiah has three books within one big, huge book, and you can kind of remember that, and you can kind of remember these guys in the first book, then when we return again, you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then, and then your depth of knowledge of it will become bigger. Um, but that's all you want to do for now. Even, you know, if that. So go to Isaiah 7.14. And here's Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Uh, Ahaz says no thanks to the sign, but Isaiah gives it anyway. Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin. It's translated virgin here because of Matthew. But, and we, so we know it's a virgin because of Matthew. But the word uh, ama in the Hebrew means a young maiden, which is generally a virgin. Behold, a young maiden, you could say here, will be with child and bear a son, and she will, she will call his name Emmanuel. Now Matthew changes that to they will call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew has the right to do that under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So the sign to be given to Ahaz is that a child will be born to a maiden. Ahaz would have shrugged his shoulders and said, so what? 
but the child's will when he's still young, whoever this child is, notice it's assigned to Ahaz. We have, if we interpret things literally, and it's what we should do, we have to assume that there was an actual literal child here who was born. God doesn't tell us who. We could even say, well, maybe there wasn't a child born. That's fine, too. The point is not what we don't know here, because there's a lot of things that we don't know. What all that matters is what God reveals. By the time this child is just still a young, young boy, those who are invading from the north will be sent home. That was the promise to Ahaz. There's two kingdoms in the north who are invading, and Ahaz is told they're not going to succeed. So look at verse 15. He will, this is the child now, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. In other words, and some think this to mean that he's truly human. Curds and honey, it's animal and vegetable. But anyway, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So this prophecy, which... You know, it's not a real blow-your-hair-back one. It's just that there will be a son who's born to somebody. And I would say, you know, when are you old enough to refuse evil and choose good? That means you have a moral compass. Maybe, well, I don't know, for a young boy, 50 years old. <laughs> no, I don't know, three, five years old, something like that, where you actually can determine good a little bit of what you should do. And so in a matter of what God is saying is that in a matter of a few years, these two kingdoms will turn around and go home. And that's exactly what happened. They did. They didn't. They tried to invade, but it failed. This is historical. It didn't work. So what's important here is that this virgin with child in some way, which this is very vague to us. I mean, and we have Matthew, so we know this refers to Jesus, and you know we have the key that opens it up. But if we only had this, it would be very vague. Some unknown kid born to some unknown woman, by the time he's like five years old, these evil people are going to turn around and go home. Odd. Okay. But it does mean... That his, notice the name, she will call his name Emmanuel. And that stands out. Everything around it is kind of blah, but God with us. Well, that is something. And what is it? Well, God with us means protection and providence. In this case, this child called Emmanuel is truly the key, at least at first glance, he's the key or the hinge upon which this invading army is going to turn around. So Emmanuel here is equated with, at least at this point, with protection. God with us, he's going to protect us. God with us, he is going to provide for us. Now, the name is mentioned again in Isaiah 8, and this is the only other time it's mentioned. That's it for the whole Bible outside of Matthew, Matthew 
So the fact, actually, that it's only mentioned three times here in Isaiah 7 and 8 means that this part is significant. Now, I don't want to over, overload us with Isaiah, so we're just going to read them quick and then return. And we'll come back here later this week. Uh, in a matter of a line or two, God fast-forwards 30 years. That's the way he does it. Actually, in a line or two, God can fast-forward hundreds of years. You have to be, you know, be ready. <laughs> you know, you'll be reading along. And like, it makes me, I always marveled at the fact that, uh, you know, when Moses runs off to Midian after he leaves Egypt, you know, after he kills a guy and Pharaoh wants to get him and he leaves Egypt, he goes to Midian, he marries a girl, has a kid, and that all happens in one sentence. Like, like God fast-forwards like 40 years in like two lines. Here he does the same thing. We fast-forward, and now we're at the Assyrians. The invading army that was coming after Ahaz, not yet was the Assyrians, but now the Assyrians are coming. And in 8.8, it says, then it, meaning Assyria, this, this is a real, monstrously violent, evil army, will sweep on into Judah. The Assyrians are the ones that Jonah hated. You know, who was Jonah sent to when he was, God said, I want to send you to people and give the gospel? To Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Jonah was like, no way am I going to Nineveh. And he tried to run away. And God put his butt in Nineveh. So anyway, these are the Assyrians in 8.8. Then it will sweep on into Judah, Assyria will, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. So this is you drowning, by the way, or Israel, really Judah, and spread, and the spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, the land, therefore, belongs to Emmanuel. Your land, O Emmanuel. Now, wait a minute, Isaiah. You just said a few lines ago that Emmanuel was this son that nobody knows, that was born to this maiden that nobody knows. But then all of a sudden here, a few lines later, Emmanuel is God. Well, but it's what it means, God with us. Now, we in the New Testament can say, well, oh, I mean, I can connect the dots here. And God wants us to. God wants us to see this progression so that we can see that in him, in his mind and in his hands, human history, which includes your life and mine, is decreed by him, step by step, all the stuff that we don't understand, why did that happen, why are they here, why is he or she in my life, why did, why did I lose that, why did I gain that? all of this. He has it all under control. And some amazing plan he has from this. If we follow, we'll become a part of that amazing plan. If we don't follow, we become resistant to it and we never enjoy and never actually build anything in this life. Because that's where we're going to end. If I, I'm going to hurry up here and we're going to end with that. We're called by God to 
builds something in each of our lives. My life alone, me, Joe, I'm going to build something. Now, here's the thing with the body of Christ. I need your help at times to build. But it is up to me to build. You can't build for me. And you've got to build your own thing. And I can help you with that when you need help. But I can't build for you. But we are to build something. And we can't build it alone. If we could, we'd be awesome. But we're not. We're still not awesome. (laughs) Neither is this land, right? So, here we go. Here's another map for you. Here comes Assyria. Here they come. Now, 721 B.C., just just after, just as Ahaz is that's the end of Ahaz. Jerky is. In seven twenty one the Assyrians take this whole place. They just took it. They conquered it. And by oh, and it's this description by Isaiah is just awful. Hooks in your neck, driving you, pulling you away back to Assyria's way out here somewhere. They, what the Assyrians did, they were smart at this. They didn't want people conglomerating together and getting back together so that they could rebel. What they would do is they'd deport a bunch of you and then import some other people from other lands and then make you intermarry. And therefore, you're not a people anymore. You're, and that's what the Samaritans came, became, right? The, the southern kingdom just saw them as half-breeds. Because that's what Assyria did. So in 721, they take this whole place. Gone. God uses this all the time. Now, Assyria did not make it to Judah. So what did God just say? Look at verse 8 again. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. Right? That means you're drowning, but you're still breathing. Correct? Assyria comes in. Now in 701 B.C., just 20 20 years later, here comes Assyria again, and that red line that you see here is the path that they took. And they come to Jerusalem. They've taken all, all these towns. They conquered them. And they come to Jerusalem from the south, And they're poised to take the city. And Sennacherib, who's the the king of Assyria, sends a messenger to them and says, look, you guys, just give in. Come out of the city. And God describes the city, Isaiah, through God through Isaiah, describes the city as a virgin, who the walls are like a womb and the people are inside. And this Assyrian aggressor wants to break. It's almost like a rape. It's really shown like that. He wants to break through the walls and take the child. And actually, if you fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, where the beast is waiting for the child to be born, to devour it. From beginning to end, this whole theme plays through, of which God's enemies want to devour his own. It's a theme from beginning to end. And that's what we read on Sunday. So this now, this is Hezekiah, and Isaiah goes to him. And Isaiah says, don't fear. He says all the same things that he said to Ahaz. Ahaz said, no thanks. Hezekiah said, I want to pray. Hezekiah's response is completely different. 
And so, Assyria comes, they're right here. And they're going to take it. No one's going to stop them. And then they, that's when the angel of the Lord comes into the camp. And 185,000 Assyrians, that's a lot of guys, wake up dead. The whole camp's dead. There's nobody left. Uh, Israel did nothing. Israel did nothing. Emmanuel, God with us, he said, this is, this is Emmanuel's land. I'm going to kill them. And uh, the king, Sennacherib, runs home, tail between his legs. And it's prophesied by Isaiah, the king of Assyria will be murdered by his sons. We see that this is historically shown to be absolutely what happened. As soon as he got back, he was worshiping his God in the temple of his God. And his son snuck up on him and stabbed him and killed him. You don't mess with Emmanuel. So look at 8.10. Devise a plan. And he's speaking to Assyria. Devise a plan. And they have a plan. You see it on the map there. But it will be thwarted. State a proposal. It will not stand. For. Now, in New American Standard spells it out. It's the same word. It's a manual. For God is with us. What is God? Well, Emmanuel is protection and providence. And now the enemy shattered. Two places it's mentioned in Isaiah. Seven and eight. is the only place in the whole Bible it's mentioned. Besides Matthew. One time in Matthew. The enemy, these Assyrians, which represent all God's enemies, in this case they represent, um, you will be protected from the enemy and the enemy will be shattered. God will provide for you. So great. This map of Israel, therefore, there it is. God's kingdom. Right? The eternal kingdom. But it's not, is it? It didn't work. It, here in, seven, in 701 B.C., 185,000 die by the hand of the angel of the Lord, and Judah is spared. And the prophet, now Jeremiah is going to come soon, and Jeremiah is going to say to them, now remember this, because that was your last warning. If you go back to worshiping idols, if you go back to... Uh, not worshiping your God and doing His will, then this place is going to be absolutely destroyed. And they went, yeah, 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 shut up, Jeremiah. And there were even false prophets in Israel going, Jeremiah is stupid, he's wrong. God is going to deliver us from the Babylonians, just as we are. Jeremiah said, he is not. And he did not. 586 B.C. Is that about 120 years later? This, Jerusalem, gone. Walls and all, gone. 
by the Babylonians. Now what Babylon does is take all these Judeans and he ships them out. That's the captivity. And then God does this amazing thing. <laughs> Make no sense. But it gets us back to book two, which doesn't make any sense. As a servant. While they're in captivity, God says, you have 70 years here and then I'm sending you back home. He tells them this. He doesn't even keep them in suspense. Even Dan, we see in the book of Daniel that Daniel, he writes about this, how he goes into the prophet, Isaiah, uh, uh, prophet Jeremiah's writing to see how long the captivity is going to be. He sees that there are 70 years. And then they'll return home. And they do return home. And we'll talk about that a little more tomorrow. Because they're going to build again. Another wall. Another temple. And God even promises them, I will dwell with you. Right? This is Emmanuel. I'm going to dwell with you in the new temple that you build. And you know, they're going to build a whole new city. So the question becomes now, what about us? Because we have to fast forward now quite a bit. Is the captivity, they rebuild the city. 400 years after they rebuild the city, a little more than 400, the actual king comes, uh, the Messiah, who is actually born of a virgin. This, no, nobody knows who she is or where she came from. It seems that Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth, but we're not, we're not told that they're born there, but it seems that they are. But that's a... You know, it's a backwater town. It's no place special. But yet God picks her. And it's almost as random as picking Abraham. Like, why in the world did he pick Abraham? Nobody knows. He just picked him. Picks Mary and Joseph. And now, of course, and he dwelt, God with us, he dwelt with Israel at the time for his ministry. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. But they rejected him, right? The leadership of Israel and a great many of the citizens of Israel rejected him. He, they did not accept him the way as he was. And uh, go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 20. Last line. Because as we know, they reject Christ, and Christ tells them, which now this becomes the real, true um, argument and purpose of Matthew's gospel, which is in Matthew 13, it's the very middle of the book, is that the offer of the kingdom to you, to this generation, is no longer. I am no longer offering this kingdom to you. I came, I preached it. The kingdom of God is among you. Repent and believe. They did not. So the kingdom's off the table. To this generation, it's not off the table forever. When I return, 
The kingdom will come. So in the meantime, what? He dies. He resurrects. The disciples see him going to heaven. They're sitting there, mouth agape. What in the world is that? And he does, leaves them. And the angels come to them and say, what are you marveling at? He's going to return in the same way he left. But right before he leaves, he says this, Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Emmanuel, is it not? I am with you. Always now. Not just for a few years. Not just, you know, like he was in Israel. Not just for a a while. And then, you know, as you continue to deny me, I'm going to have a kingdom come in and invade you and take you away. This is forever. I am with you always to the end of the age. So, in the meantime, therefore... Is God with us, you know, while he's not here? You know, it's, I'm, he's left. He, they watched him go. Before he left, he said in John 13 to, uh, to the disciples in the upper room, he said, uh, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you'll follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? That's when Peter said, you know, I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. Why can't we go now? It's not the plan. The plan is that I go. So, how is he with us? Well, yeah, and he indwells our bodies. He gave us the Spirit, and he indwells our bodies. I mean, not only is he with us, he's in us. And this was not before. This never happened before. In this age. So we would think to ourselves perhaps that, you know, there's, it's one thing to be in the presence of Christ. If I was in the presence of Christ and he's right there and he says, I'll provide for you, I'll protect you, and I'll shatter the enemies. Like we just saw in Isaiah 7 and 8. I'll provide for you. Well, I can see you right there. You're doing great. Right? We're all fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. Yeah, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Right? Every time the disciples were accosted by the leadership, it was Jesus who spoke, Jesus who defended them. And I'll, sh- I'll shatter the enemy. Yeah, he's the miracle maker. He's the miracle doer. We just follow him around. And then he says, well, now I'm leaving. And I'm leaving you. And you can't follow where I'm going. And I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. How is that possible if you're up there in heaven and I'm down here on earth and you're not here? He says in John 14, we don't have time today, but we'll go into it tomorrow. I won't leave you as orphans. And that's when he says something incredible. It's my favorite passage in John the Gospel of John. He says, look, if you love me and keep my commands, then I and our father, my Father 
said, we will come to you and make our abode with you. Now, abode is house. Prior to this, he said, I'm going to heaven to make an abode for you. He uses the same word. I'm going to heaven to make a place for you. <clears throat> but then afterwards, he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And if you love me, he's very clear that this is not in heaven. There's many evidences in what he says that what he's talking about is we're here and he's up there. And he says, look, if you love me and keep my commandments, I and my father are going to build our house with you. And I've always imagined this, you know, this house is like I'm in it. He built it around me. Like there's an experience to this, therefore. Just it's he's invisible an invisible with him actually becomes the experience of being in a house that he built. I mean, that's got to be a real experience. And of course it is. But this with him, does it mean that I'm going to just watch this? Because the, the preposition can mean like beside or it can mean near, actually. Is he building the house near me? So I'm watching him build. But this word also can mean association. In other words, to build with someone. And in the context, if I'm loving him and following his commandments, I'm actually doing something. I'm not just sitting on a log watching Jesus build a house. Being, hey, look, that, that looks great. Keep going. And I'm doing nothing. It seems to me, and this time around that I've looked at this, that this with him means he's putting tools in our hands and he's saying, pick up a hammer, pick up a saw, pick up a level, whatever, and come build with me. And so now with him, it means with, with him, him in us, his word in us, his spirit in us, that we're actually able to build a structure with him. With Emmanuel. And while we're building, we can't do this alone. That's when we get ourselves in trouble, when we start saying we're going to build alone. We do this with him. And while we're building, he protects us, he provides for us. And when the enemy comes against us, I leave that in his hands. I follow his will. I'm not fighting the enemy. Even the people, I'm not fighting them. I'm going to love my enemy and let him fight. Let him protect. Let him shatter. Because the difference between Ahaz and Hezekiah, father and son, is faith. One had faith, the other didn't. That's the only difference. Because of that faith, Hezekiah loved the Lord. Same with us. So, there's a little more to that, and we'll have to, I'm way out of time here, so. But we'll look at it a little more tomorrow. But for application for us today, build. Don't be afraid. Build. Take this God with you and by his word and by his spirit, build. Follow him and, and do what he tells you to do. Love him and follow his commandments and you will build with him. Don't settle for anything less. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for these promises. Thank you for the truths that come from your prophecies and promises and 
from the whole realm of Scripture. So overwhelming and yet so wonderful. There's so much to know, Father. We take it piece at a time. We will return to your word again and again. We ask that through your spirit you would guide us along and teach us and build up our wisdom so that we may live as you would have us do. We ask in Christ's name, amen.